oftentimes, if you ask a person if they're tough, in their mind, they really are relative to what they set as the bar. But I know one uh, coach of an NFL team who asked his athlete, how hard do you think you're working right now, scale of 0 to 10? And the guy said, I'm a 9 right now. This is like a top draft pick. He's like, I'm a 9. The coach is like, you're a 3, dude. Blue is mine. What do you mean I'm a 3? He's like, relative to the NFL, you're a 3. You think you're a 9, you're a 3. And therefore, it's the same with toughness. You might think you're tough, but how you define it, what your cultural values are, uh, the context of the situation, all of those determine how one would score their toughness. Hey, this is Dr. Jerry Spencer, sports psychologist from the company Mind of the Athlete. You can get more information on us on our website, mindoftheathlete.com. I'm also the author of the book, Mind of the Athlete, Clear Mind, Better Performance. And you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports, health, and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week I'm interviewing Dr. Jared Spencer, who is the president and founder of Mind of the Athlete in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Spencer and his team work with professional Olympic college and high school athletes, coaches, and teams all across the country. He was previously our episode 50 guest where he taught us about the athlete transition to life after sports. Today we are focusing on toughness and masculinity in sports today and the effect that it has on an athlete's psyche. So Jared, thanks a lot for agreeing to come back on the show again. Kevin, it's an honor. Thank you. Uh, and I feel like today is a good way to start off is just by defining what toughness is to you before we kind of get into a, a discussion about toughness. Well, I like the classic definition you often hear in sports, which is simply this. Toughness is being comfortable, being uncomfortable for just a little bit longer than you thought possible. Okay. What is uncomfortability to you? It's emotional. Okay. It's cognitive. It's our thoughts and our feelings of being in a stressful situation that's got our body on full alert and depleting us of our energy resources pretty quickly to a point where we realize we can't operate quite like this very long. Something has to change. Right. I'm uncomfortable. I like that. So has this definition evolved over time or has this really always been your definition of toughness? Well, it has been my definition of toughness for, for a period of time, but what we do see now more than ever, particularly within college athletics, is that the emotionality of sports is greater now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, and thus it's going to impact how we experience toughness. Okay. Um, who would you say the toughest person is uh, to you? Like When you think of toughness, who comes to mind? Tim Tebow. Your man. Dude, I Tim, love Tebow. Tim Tebow. I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> you did a podcast on his book, right? I did, yeah. Yeah. So, and the reason it's Tim Tebow is because he has stood up in the face of a culture that has really attacked him from a lot of angles, and yet he's continued to treat the world with incredible kindness. That's not easy. And perform at high levels. Right. And so that's one small reason why I think 
toughness is best uh, exhibited by Tim Tebow because toughness is not about physicality only. It's also about the mentality and spirituality. Okay. And he puts them all together better than I've seen anybody else. I, I agree with you. I was talking to Alex, our, our intern, and on the way here, and I was like, that's who I think is tough. It was like Tim Tebow. And when I was preparing for this, uh, this show, I was like, I talk about Tim Tebow all the time. Like, I got to think of someone else. I'm like, nope, Mike, this is my guy. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. And in terms of like what my definition of toughness was when I was 17 years old, before I had my traumatic brain injury, it's much different than what I believe toughness is today. So like when I was 17, I thought that toughness was playing injured. This mat, this uh, physical physicality that you were just talking about, mm-hmm. playing injured, hitting home runs, scoring touchdowns, making big hits. Like that was tough to me, like quote unquote. Uh, so I'm interested to see like where this discussion is is going to go today. So how would you describe how our society as a whole defines toughness compared to your definition? When we look at our culture, we think that the most publicized sport is what? Football. Football. Yeah, it's football. And so how the media portrays how athletes deal with pain in football has largely shaped the American culture and particularly men's use of the healthcare system. And so what I mean by that is if we look at how men define toughness. Well, we look at these gladiators out there on a Saturday or a Sunday, and we see them sucking up, persevering, playing through great pain. But what we don't see is the Monday morning ice bath or the time in the trainers, or we see them five to 10 years after they retire, or they're suddenly injured in college football and they're not playing anymore. Therein lies where they're really going through incredible pain and suffering cognitively and emotionally, but that's not what our culture has really sold us on Saturdays and Sundays. Right. We only see them scoring the touchdowns and that, not the the other side of it. So there's a big incongruency between what really constitutes toughness in everyday real life and then how the media's portrayal of toughness has shaped our culture. And those two aren't the same, which is why I think we've got ourselves a bit of a problem in America when it comes to treatment of pain, particularly on the use of medication or over-medication to help us with some of those symptoms. Like opiate painkillers and stuff like that? We see it all the time in sports, right? Yeah. Classic. Kid plays one sport year-round, gets injured, then has the first surgery gets some painkillers, is depressed and anxious because he's not able to return to the sport because he's been out of it. His identity has been wrapped up into it. Eventually, he likes the way the painkillers make him feel. Heroin's cheaper. Heroin epidemic in America. And it usually has that progression within sports. Okay. Yeah. This might be a little bit of a tangent, but I've recently been interviewing a bunch of athletes, pro football guys who are advocates of cannabis use. Mm Mm-hmm in lieu of opiate painkillers and in being a journalist type person i'm trying to get like all sides of all perspectives like there's they're all talking about all the great things that cannabis and cbd specifically uh cannabidiol i guess i think it's called um has on 
an athlete, especially in terms of pain and recovery and stuff like that. Do you think, do you have an opinion on, on this subject? And like, if I do actually. And so I'm a science guy, I want to see the science and I'm very open-minded to new ideas, progressive ideas as it relates to the science. And so the science is showing us that cannabinoids could be a very viable option in the treatment of pain. Right. And so, again, we have to rethink what our culture has thought about it. And, of course, there's a negative side to everything. Mm -hmm. But we have to be open-minded to the science of what hemp might be able to do. Right. So what about THC? Like, if that's your if your mode of ingesting cannabis is smoking it or like with marijuana, not like the, the package CBD, you know, clean cut version. Is there a negative effect that THC has on the brain of an athlete? Well, now we're talking about opening a big can of worms, right? Right. And so that topic is what makes this very complicated. Okay. And so what I prefer to do is focus on the science of what cannabinoids could do for us from a pain management angle, as opposed to how much smoking weed is going to really impact, right? So therein lies almost like two different perspectives. One that's impacted sports culture and American culture for a long time. It's got a very negative stereotype. Right. And then we've got something over here with science and technology starting to look at high performance and health and healing, what could be done. So you would say that the science doesn't really back either one completely yet or the science that i've seen really backs the cannabinoids okay but the cultural implications with marijuana over here and weed that's another that's another animal okay so we talk about the 15 year old high school athlete smoking weed in the parking lot before he goes into school every day because he's so stressed and anxious and that's the only way he could relax therein lies a bad problem right an addictive problem a psychologically based problem and there is a whole world over here of anxiety being treated by weed among our young people okay and then we talk about the science over here of people who have significant pain discomfort medical conditions and could the cannabinoids be something that would be very helpful one place i tell people look my friend rally cody professional I'm I'm about to interview him in a couple of weeks. You tell Rally I said hello. All right. Uh, we work together uh, with the Lehigh Valley Phantoms. He's one of the assistant coaches there. I'm a sports psychologist. And so he's got a great organization called Hemp Heals. And so through Riley, there's a lot of links through his organization to the science. And what I just encourage people to do is let's be open-minded to the science of the human body and high performance and let's rethink what the culture is thinking. And let's look at what we can do in terms of a scientific angle. And so that's a loaded part. Right. Uh, a loaded piece. But who knows? Well, I appreciate your opinion on that because I'm like trying to see a non-athlete's perspective on it or like a more clinical right. you know, perspective on that. Um, so I appreciate that. Sorry for kind of getting off topic there. But back to the toughness idea. How often do athletes come into your office to, you know, talk about toughness issues and like what, how does toughness affect them performance wise? They don't come in for the topic of toughness. They come in because they are feeling um, not tough. Uh, they're feeling anxious, they're feeling depressed, they're feeling vulnerable, they're feeling as though the culture around them has told them 
that there's something wrong with them, that they're not enough. Right. Because they're not performing at the highest level. They're not feeling their very best. And so they come in for anxiety and depression. That's what I see. In the end, uh, toughness is related, but we have to redefine what toughness really is. Okay. So how do you do that with the athletes that come in with, with those issues? First and foremost, we, we challenge the societal uh, stereotype that we're not supposed to talk about our feelings and that we're not supposed to cry. It's okay to cry. It's okay to talk about our stuff. I'm a big crier. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Likewise, like it is so <laughs> cathartic, which means a freeing of emotion. And we've got to uh, encourage our athletes to be able to let this stuff out. Now, I understand what they all say. Jared, I can talk to you. I can talk to my parents. I can talk to somebody else. But, but I cannot let coach know. I don't want him to see that I'm vulnerable. Yeah, I've been there, yeah. Yes. And I don't even want my teammates to really know because I don't want them to use it against me. Right. And so we find that there's a bubble where they're not able to really emote. Therein lies the problem. All right. So with uh, this whole coach idea, I, I always tell the story, like, I don't blame my coach for my brain injury, but I just use this example as, like, the mindset that athletes have and the influence that coaches have on their athletes when they might not think that they do. So I broke my collarbone my freshman year playing football. I was sitting out of practice, obviously, the next Monday with my arm in a sling, and the varsity coach walks past us, and he was kidding, but, like, I thought he was serious. He's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, well, I have a broken collarbone. He's like, well, Rusty Campion played in the 2001 state championship game with a broken collarbone. And he was kidding. And I later found out that this kid, like, really didn't play with a broken collarbone. Like, he had broke his collarbone that year, but he sat out four weeks and let himself heal and then went and played the state championship game. But when I was 14, I was like, oh, crap. Like, wow, I'm, like, a real sissy, huh? Like, I guess, you know, I'm not tough. Then I, this following season, I, when the first linebacker start on varsity as a sophomore, sends this kid, Rusty Campion. And, like, I keep getting compared to this guy. He went to Lehigh, played linebacker there, college football player. Like, he was someone I wanted to, I looked up to. So my senior year, I separate my shoulder on the same field I broke my collarbone on. And I was the first thing that came to mind. I'm like, I'm not coming out. I'm like, Rusty Campion played in the 2001 state championship game with a broken collarbone. So I kept playing, favored my other shoulder, hurt that shoulder, and then it started leaving with my head. And I think that's what led to my brain injury. So from a – when kids say like they 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 don't feel like they can express how they feel to their coach, what how how can we attack that issue? It's really from the bottom up. What we're seeing is a grassroots movement of our younger athletes saying, "Enough's enough. I'm going to talk about this." And if you don't want to pay attention to it, that's fine, Mr. Coach. But I'm going to put on my social media. I'm going to put it out there. And so we're seeing the society's beginning to change. Because the athletes are more willing. For example, Dr. Brian Hanline is the chief medical officer for the NCAA. When he took over as such, he met with a bunch of student athletes around the country. And he asked them, what is the biggest concern? What should we focus on? What do you really need? And consistently, they said again and again and again, mental health. The, these are the athletes. These are the athletes. These are college athletes. They're, they're saying to the chief medical officer, we need the NCAA to address mental health. So Brian Hanline has gone on record saying this is the number one issue facing college athletes today. We have got to do more. But here's the harsh reality. There is great awareness for concussions, concussion protocols, 
resources, treatments in place, and we've done a really nice job over the last decade with concussions. But when it comes to mental health, resources, referrals, funding for education, speaking, putting educational resources in the athlete's hands, the funding is not yet there. And so we're at the infancy, we're at the start of something really, really significant over the next one, two, three, four, five years where mental health is going to be the next big thing. Do you think that that's because you think it's a funding issue or like a societal acceptance of mental health? Because there's like a stigma around mental health, just like there is, you know, toughness and cannabis, like, you know. Absolutely. So we as a culture have to rethink mental health. Now, to Brian Hanlon's credit, he said, I think the NCAA could be a model to follow for the entire country on how we view mental health, how we treat mental health, how we support mental health. That is such an ambitious project. Yet, why not have sports rethink and change the culture? But again, if this is going to happen, we have to have the science. Right. We have to have the neuroscience particularly is showing what is really going on in our brains and our bodies and our guts when it comes to neurotransmitters is what's really happening with mental health. It's not that you're just a wimp. There's something far more significant scientifically going on. And I believe that if we follow the path of science, that is going to help shepherd in mental health and change societal values. Okay. So it's a societal issue. It seems to be yeah, apparent. Yeah. Um, when is the earliest memory that you have that kind of set the foundation for what toughness and masculinity was for you? My junior year of high school as a wrestler, I was a captain of the team and I was expected to have great success. And you guys are a big, big wrestling program out there in Phillipsburg, right? Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Yep. We didn't win the state title in wrestling my sophomore year and you would have thought that it was a death in the family <laughs> you know we finished second and that was not acceptable we literally trained seven days a week including christmas of no days off um and when i started the season i went one in four and the big reason was because i broke two of my ribs uh, where the cartilage meets the bone I had a dislocation there, and it hurt so bad when I would breathe, when I move. Um, but never did the thought come to me that I wouldn't wrestle in a match. I wrestled, but it hurt really bad, and it became obvious that I was struggling. And so, the athletic trainer, the coaches, uh, my my family, the people lived on my street, the entire community, they were kind of like like, "What's wrong with you?" It's like, well, I, I hurt myself. Like, yeah, but like. So? Right. <laughs> <laughs> what ended up happening was I realized that people in the, I heard that people in the stands were saying he shouldn't be wrestling. He's not that good. We need to get him out of the lineup. Wait, people like literally telling you this or like you hearing. Hearing. Hearing from From people. other people that they're saying these things. So right. word travels fast, right? And so I. I as a, as a 16-year-old kid, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do when I feel like the community is not supporting me? I only had one choice, and that was I needed to find a way psychologically to suck it up and to wrestle with two broken ribs and never lose. 
And I was able to do that for 17 straight matches. Well. <laughs> because losing wasn't an option. Right. Like, I, I just can't lose or the psychological, emotional cost of that is going to be more than I could bear. And so I did win 17 straight matches um, and had great success until the very, very end of the season. Um, the last two matches, almost like mentally when I knew district finals regions, that I knew like it could, if I lost now, this whole thing could end. And part of me wanted it to end. Yeah, I mean, it, when you're hurt and you're just like, you're just trying to fight through it. Yeah, of course you just want it to end. You want it to end. And so I got beat, upset, first round of regions was expected to place in states and privately I was relieved right. that the pressure of it all was now over. That's a common thing that a lot of athletes say on my podcast is like sometimes when they get hurt, there was almost like, Oh my God, thank God. I don't need yeah. to like go through that anymore. Um, so that's a interesting topic. Um, uh, how do like experiences like that get kind of built into an athlete's memory bank? And how does that like influence their performance going forward and like their ability to push themselves to a point where maybe they shouldn't push themselves to? The amygdala. <laughs> have you ever heard of it before? I have. I took a, 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 a motion, something in a motion class. In so the college, amygdala, yeah. nicknamed the Amy G. Dalla, this is how you spell it, <laughs> okay. is a almond-shaped structure, bilateral, both sides of the brain, sits on the edge of the hippocampus and acts as a filter. You see, the hippocampus takes short-term memory and converts it to long-term memory. And the amygdala is the filter for that. So when something happens that we have a painful experience, emotionally charged experience, those memories get stored in the, in the amygdala so that it's a protective mechanism. So it doesn't happen again, hopefully. Okay. So if you lead with your head in a football hit and it hurts really bad you might have that memory stored in the amygdala. So the next time you go to leave with your head, you might say, no, no, don't, don't, don't do that. Right? Yeah. So it's a protective mechanism. So when it comes to painful experiences in life, the amygdala is what is there to help us to not have that same experience twice, which is why the emotionality of injuries is really so significant because it could be there for years and years to come. Let, let me just prove to you real quick. Has any of you guys watched a basketball game and seen a guy go down with a rolled ankle and cringed because you remember rolling your ankle? Right. Oh, yeah. And immediately that visceral response, you're like, I can't even watch that rolled ankle there. You, you feel that, you felt that hurt. Amygdala. Okay. That's like your, what's the word, empathy kind of thing? That would be part of it yeah. because uh, there's a lot of strong emotions that come up in the amygdala. So how do you kind of shut the amygdala up? Like I'm thinking in, in, in football, right? Like you said, like leaning with your head and like playing injured and like your amygdala is telling you, don't do this. Like, you know, this is going to hurt, but right. how do you shut that up? And like, why should athletes maybe listen to their amygdala a little more? Ah, uh, right. Great, great question. <clears throat> a big part of like the sport performance side of psychology is focused on overriding the amygdala. So it's a protective mechanism. For, so for example, a gymnast, you're not supposed to be in the air with your feet above your head. Right. <laughs> the amygdala will ring its loud alarm because that's not, but yet gymnasts have to do this all the time. And of course they fall and get hurt in the process of learning how to do this. So 
rethinking situations, applying breathing techniques, looking at it from alternate angles, all of visualization, hypnosis, relaxation, all of these techniques and skill sets can help a person override the amygdala. So when does that become a problem though? Like, I, I mean, I rode my, overrode my amygdala right up to the point where my brain was bleeding and I collapsed on the sideline having a seizure. So like, how, how can we alter an athlete's mind to prioritize their health over, you know, the success of their team or what, or the fear of how they're going to be viewed by their teammates or coaches or. Well, you're onto because there's layers to this. And ultimately, it's very difficult to change a 18-year-old's mindset regarding regard for their body and health when ultimately the biggest thing that matters to them is loyalty to their teammates and camaraderie and being accepted and being liked and having that kind of success. But the reality is, in different contexts, we admire people that override their MIGDA. So if we look at our Navy SEALs, Right. Rangers, people that serve in the military, put themselves in harm's way. They're overriding their amygdala. Right. And we need to give them props and respect because that's really, really impressive. And they're doing it for a very valiant cause. But we have to rethink sports. It's Sports is not military. Sports is not war. It's a game. And it's a significant part of one's life. But we have to keep sports in their proper perspective to help people value their health enough not to succumb to the societal values and sacrifice the body in a negative long-term way. Okay. When would you say the first time that you, like what was the moment where you first felt like emasculated and how did that affect you maybe as an athlete or just as a man in general in this society? Spring of my sophomore year of college, after I had had my third concussion in three months playing college football. Right. Go back to episode 50 to learn to hear about the, yep. that story, too. I couldn't shake these symptoms. I felt anxious. I felt depressed. I remember very clearly before I would catch everything. Now I'd be in the shower and soap would slip and I would, I would drop it. or I, I'd knock over a coffee cup. I was spilling things at the table. And I just remember saying, what is wrong with me? My, my, something's not working right. We, we didn't have terms like post-concussive syndrome then and we didn't understand the long term. I just knew that it was like somebody put kryptonite in my pocket and all of my powers that I had before as this masculine athlete having bravado and success and <laughs> capability, like it was taken away. And it really broke me to my core until uh, a woman named Kim Stento, I think it is. Yep, Kim Stento. She was an athletic trainer at Lafayette and she was helping me with all my rehab. And she said to me, Jared, I want to uh, ask you a question if you'd be willing to help me with something. I'm like, I got nothing better to do right now. <laughs> you know, I'm really at my lowest point. She said, I'd like to start this thing called Fellowship of Christian Athletes here at Lafayette College, but I need some people like you to maybe help me with it. And I said, I don't know what it is, but it's got athlete in it, so I'm game. <laughs> and together, we then started this organization with others, um, and that organization at Lafayette, carried forth by uh, George Bright for a number of years, decades. Uh, that organization there at Lafayette and across the country and across the world 
has been a significant part of reframing what toughness really means relative to sport and life. It was more than the mind. It was down now into the soul. Okay. That sounds like a, a good future podcast episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what was, the, what, what was the moment that you felt that you most embodied toughness and masculinity in your life? I think the moment for me personally was about 10 years ago, our daughter, I I was at my breaking point. I was just overextended with work and such. And I said to my wife literally this night, I don't have anything more in the tank. We had a new baby in the house, just a few weeks old. I was sleep deprived. I said, I'm at my breaking point. Well, that very night, I took my daughter to the hospital twice with belly pain. Uh, Turns out she was admitted, spent a week in the hospital, ended up having surgery at the children's hospital. She had kidney stones at four years old. Emergency surgery. They thought she might die. At my breaking point, I went a week with virtually no sleep, higher stress than ever, and I just felt like I felt alive, though. Like, this is my little girl, and there was nothing I wouldn't have done for her. And so I really understood what toughness really meant when you're at a point where you reach the brink and you absolutely positively say I have nothing left now mind you like having been an athlete it's we've all been to that point where like I have nothing left in practice no I had nothing left in life I was like born out tired and then for me it was God showed up and I had this peace that surpassed all understanding and I just had a level and an energy that I just felt like, I don't know where this is coming from, but I believe it was from God. And I believe that somehow I've found that, you know, even when you are at your brink, uh, there's resources of toughness. That kind of like come into your life? Yes. In particular, in that situation, it was a spiritual level of toughness because I didn't have anything left in my tank. Right. Like, you say that it's just kind of came to you, but I feel like you have to be open to something in order to kind of, like, receive those uh, inspirations of toughness. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, for athletes who might be more, like, closed-minded or they're they're stuck in this, like, woe-is-me type mentality, like, how do you receive those, like, messages? Or how do you, like, break down those barriers? That's a big part of what we do here at Mind of the Athlete is the reality is that for a lot of athletes, they're not closed-minded. They actually, they want to go to that place, but to be blunt about it, they've been really hurt somehow spiritually. They're mad at God. There's been a falling out with God. Religion has done damage to them or their families along the way. And so it's not that they don't want an openness. They just haven't found the person that they could actually ask the tough questions and find the support and the patient's validation to help them get unstuck. And when you find that person in your life that could come alongside you, mentor you in that way, that's really what people are looking for. That's what they really want. And from there, oftentimes the the door just opens. Okay. Um, what would you say like the bar is for toughness? Like I, I know some guests that I've had on my podcast talk about like 
kind of the dynamic that happiness and toughness are these like fleeting things. Like no matter how, you know, how cool the you, the car that you just bought is, like there's always someone that's going to have like a cooler car. Or like in terms of toughness, you can never really be tough enough. And that's kind of how I felt in my career. Like no matter what I did or what injury I played with, like you're never going to get that pat on the back that's like, you know what, like you finally made it, dude. Like you're tough now. Yeah. So – what is the bar that I guess, I guess like in sports, where does that bar even come from? Or like that ever chasing bar that you're trying to like reach? The difficulty with answering that question is that it's relative, meaning each person determines where that bar, bar is really is, right. set. And each family determines where that bar is set. And, Oftentimes, if you ask a person if they're tough, in their mind, they really are relative to what they, they set think, right as here. the bar. But I know one uh, coach of an NFL team who asked his athlete, how hard do you think you're working right now, scale of zero to 10? And the guy said, I'm a nine right now. This is like a top draft pick. He's like, I'm a nine. The coach is like, you're a three, dude. Blue is mine. What do you mean I'm a three? It's like relative to the NFL, you're a three. You think you're a nine, you're a three. And therefore, it's the same with toughness. You might think you're tough, but how you define it, what your cultural values are, uh, the context of the situation, right? all of those determine how one would score their toughness. Right. I see what you're saying. So that seems like it's strongly influenced by the people that you are surrounded with growing up or who you hang out with and stuff like that. So for coaches and parents, how should you, what would you recommend like as a way to kind of create a culture of not safety in sports, but like create a, a mindset where it's like, okay to say when you're hurt and to maybe redefine like where that bar lies. I think the way that, we are going to redefine where the bar lies is only going to be societally accepted when we put the science behind injuries in situations that w- and statistics behind the stuff that would normalize it. Uh, for example, uh, if we looked at mental health, we said, uh, how, how significant really is it? What's, what, what do the numbers say out there? Well, here, here's some numbers. If we think of our college students, not just athletes, just college students in general right now, you know, what percentage of them had depression so bad at one point this last year they couldn't even function? Well, the answer would be over a third. Wow. Around 37%. And then if we said, well, how many people had like um, uh, high levels of anxiety, like an anxiety attack? And the answer would be 57.7%. So more than one out of two had overwhelming anxiety. And so when we look at that data, we think, oh my gosh, what are we doing about that? Right. That kind of data will help reshape where we put the bar. Okay. Um, I guess what I was like thinking about there, we saw all these, these athletes having anxiety and depression. Would you say that that, those feelings come from like feeling inadequate and like lacking toughness. 
Yeah, let's 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 go down the path for a second because look, Generation X, you know, people around there, thirty-five, fifty-five, maybe in that ballpark in there, they're the parents, and we've raised a generation here in America where the kids are overextended, they're overscheduled, they're overwhelmed. They're sleep deprived. We have an epidemic in America of, of sleep deprivation. And yet we're not really doing much to address it. And so this is what's driving higher levels of anxiety. This is what's driving higher levels of depression. And the kids feel like nothing is ever good enough. Parents are pushing them. They got to get in the better school. You got to make the travel team. You got to go year round in soccer by seventh grade. And what have we done We've, we've indoctrinated them with that their value is in what they do and what they achieve and what they accomplish. And that's setting them up for a massive fall. Now, millennials today will tell you, they look at Generation X and like, we don't want to be like y'all. Y'all like overworked and stressed and depressed <laughs> and frustrated and like, we don't want that, right? And so therein lies a battle between you know, older generations saying the millennials don't have the work ethic, the worth the millennials are saying, dude, we don't want to work like that if you're going to be miserable like that. Right. And so there's all this stuff. But what we do know is that our young people coming up today are struggling more than ever. More than ever. So you said you talked about like value and like how you, the kids today are kind of taught that their value in lies and like where they go to school and what team that they made and like all that stuff so how do we reverse that that role or like sure where, me, where do you start i guess i don't know okay where do you start look the reality is most people struggle to pay for college today so if you talk to your parents they'll be like well why are you pushing them so well actually you know because we can't afford college and therefore we'd like to have them get a scholarship that's a big that's a big misnomer of the illusion there okay there's 10 times more academic money available than athletic money for scholarships so if we want to really help the kid get to college and, and get a job, then we really need to maybe put our kid in chemistry club and let's go do some of the arts and let's do some other things that might increase his academic right. viability. So a de-emphasis on athletics and a greater emphasis on academics. That cultural shift, which would make sense, would be one place to at least get a foothold uh, to start. Why do you think parents are like so, they get so much like excitement out of their kids playing sports Yeah, that make them do that? Yeah. Th- it's vicarious. I tell parents all the time, if your Facebook profile pic is your kid's athletic pic, that's a problem. <laughs> you can't have that. You're way too into it. Right. Yeah. And yet we see it all the time. Okay. So in terms of toughness and how we define toughness is there like a gender discrepancy like with the athletes that you work with like in terms of what their definition is and you know are a girl a female athletes more prone to say when they're hurt or maybe the opposite or that is a really great question because how one would define toughness would have a gender component to it right and more specifically it would be even to each sport. So, for example, if you looked at a female field hockey team and how they might define toughness to be, that might be a little bit different than somebody that's on the cross-country team. 
And so when we look at defining toughness from a gender anger angle, as well as maybe even a cultural angle, what we know is that it's really uh, very specific to the subcultures in which the person is existing. Okay. Um, so as a parent, how do you kind of define toughness to your daughters, right? A daughter and two sons. Daughter and two sons. So daughter and sons. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. So how do you, how do you, what are you doing to kind of define where that bar lies and to give examples like Tim Tebow and to give them that definition of what toughness is to kind of combat the current societal view of that? Well, I try to model to them ways that I think toughness is exhibited, but I also try to put them around other people. Okay. So for example, I took all three kids this past weekend. I was teaching at the Mid-Atlantic Fellowship of Christian Athletes Leadership Camp. I was there for a couple of days teaching on Mind of the Coach, best practices for coaching today's student-athletes and on mental health to the coaches. And so bringing our kids who are not yet in high school around these high school and college kids to see them and how they carry themselves and how they compete and how they do activities and how they talk about things and how they worship God and sing and how they have fun I think in that culture at the Mid-Atlantic Leadership Camp, there was lots of examples of kids redefining what toughness really was. Let's sit around a circle and talk about our feelings or talk about a Bible verse and how that relates to our lives deeply, intrinsically. That's countercultural. Right. And yet, I think that in parenting, uh, showing our kids bright spots that they could try to emulate is one of the most effective ways to change culture and redefine in their head what toughness is. Love that. I almost think of it like wearing a helmet when you ride your bike. It's like not the cool thing to do or like what society, I don't know, views as like, I don't know, a tough thing. Like you're all, you're wearing a helmet, like feels right. sweet, dude. Um, but it's like what's, by you wearing a helmet, I think that's actually tougher than not wearing a helmet because mm -hmm. of all the, flack that you get from like your friends and this and that like that's tougher to do than not wearing one at all yes um in terms of the fellowship of christian athletes how what like what if you're not a christian how do you are there non-christians who are like involved in absolutely this yeah it's kind of like the entry level place so like i'm an athlete and i'm kind of curious kind of like when i was in the trainer's room with kim stento okay i'm an athlete and I'm curious, and Kim seemed like somebody that I really respected and admired. She was helping me, and so I could probably learn something from her. And so there are a lot of individuals that come looking for like somebody that I could ask questions, even though they might not be a Christian or may, they may not believe in God or they may have a different uh, religious uh, background, but it's in a place where a person can go and explore. Okay. So everyone's welcome there. That's the key. You got to have some place where you can at least check it out. Right. Uh, and like anything, there's levels, but that's a place where it's very easy to like just check it out. And do like most schools have a they fellowship do. of Christian athletes? Yeah. Like, there's a there's a huddle they call them, and so they'll be before school in a public high school. Okay. And you might get there like seven fifteen. School might start seven forty five, and and they get together in a classroom. And so that's that's something very common. Or on a college campus, they have Athletes in Action, Fellowship Christian Athletes. And uh, George Bright, I know he led his on Sunday nights at 7 o'clock. And, 
And so that was something that a time that worked for many athletes. So that's a, it's something that's everywhere. I'd love to like sit in on one of those just to like see the dynamics and see the athletes that come in and what they talk about. And I think that'd be a a cool experience. So because it's redefining toughness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean we're going to sit around and talk about matters of faith and matters of feelings and, you know, our personal growth and our relationships, like that's countercultural, mm-hmm. but I think that's where real toughness is. Right. In fact, uh, toughness isn't invulnerability. Toughness is absolute vulnerability. Right. And that's difficult to get to. That's perfect. Um, as we wrap up the interview, um, can you kind of just tell the audience where they could find more information about you and uh, Mind of the Athlete and what you guys do? We're really active on social media. So if you're listening, I would say get on Twitter, get on Instagram, get on Facebook, get on LinkedIn, get on YouTube. There's tons of resources available. We're constantly putting out material that's going to help an individual with the mental side of the game. As well as we've got our website and shameless plug for the new book, Mind of the Athlete, Clear Mind, Better Performance, that's got a lot of depth into how the mind works as well as practical skills so that we can have a clear mind and better performance. Perfect. We'll uh, link that up in the show notes. And I really appreciate you spending the time to talk about toughness and what masculinity is to you on the show and helping us redefine what that is in the sports culture that we live in today. Because I'm a true believer that that's kind of like the foundational you know, step that needs to be taken in order to make sports safer to play. Because obviously, like, my goal on this podcast is not to scare people away from playing sports. It's like the opposite, right? I want people to feel comfortable enough and be vulnerable enough to say when they're hurt and to understand in no matter if your coaches give you slack or your friends give you slack about saying that you're hurt or something like you're in control of you know you being tough right yes you if you if your definition in your head is you know in line with with that toughness then you're you're doing something right absolutely and you're doing something right because you are redefining a lot of what toughness means within sports. So keep doing what you're doing with these podcasts. You're having a greater impact than you even realize. Thanks, Dr. Spencer. Always a pleasure.